Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. I'm Bruce Daisley. I'm Ellen Scott. I'm Matt Cook. Thanks for joining us today. We've got lovely feedback from some of the previous episodes, so it's really grateful to hear that. Along the way, people have said maybe we agree too much, so we, we may need to work on that. That's probably something for, for us to, for me to, especially, to think about. It's no point us all being here and all agreeing on all of the things. But I don't think episode, we agree too much. It's a Christmas <laughs> pantomime season, right? <laughs> Today, we've got another work chat episode. So before we take a break, there's one more work chat and there's one more interview and we'll, uh, the, I'll be putting the interview out next week. And this week, we're just going to be chatting about some of the headlines in the world of work and, and the, the discussions and the, the conversations that are taking place. So I don't know if anyone wants to kick us off of anything that they've seen over the course of the last few weeks that's caught their attention. I can kick off with a new bit of research that I've been sent, which is from this social enterprise TimeWise, which is all about like flexible working, which as you know, I'm very pro. Um, but basically it's exploring how we're still viewing part-time work in a not very positive way. So I'll read some very top line stats. Um, so they are surveyed about 4,000 UK workers and found that the main kind of issue part-time workers are facing is actually their managers and something they're calling a manager block. So a lot of managers wanting to think that part-time working and career progression is just not compatible and essentially won't give you a promotion or a pay rise if you're part-time working because they kind of assume you're not really like serious about this job or you don't care much about progressing. So it's much harder to climb the ladder if you are doing part-time work. And obviously at the moment, part-time work, the majority of people that are doing it are women with kind of caring responsibilities. If that's still not really respected or valued, I am worried about the idea of the four-day week taking off or anyone doing part-time work for just general well-being, work-life balance reasons. I don't know how that's going to progress if we're still having that kind of mental block of going, this person just isn't really committed to work. They're not that interested. I don't know what you guys think. I'm cautious now of agreeing with you too much. But no, no, no. but that's interesting. What so someone working reduced hours was seen as less committed to the cause. It's almost like if you cared, you'd give us your whole week. 
Yeah, exactly that. And it's just, I think there's real difficulty and I'm sure anyone who's worked part-time has seen this of getting thought of for promotions or thought of for big projects because people will go, oh, well, she's not working today or he's not working today. We'll just give it to someone else who's always here and always going to be available. It's a really difficult thing to get past. And I think it's not... What was the statistic? One in two managers think part-time work and career progression are incompatible it's the logistics of it but it's also this mental blocker of going well this person's part-time so they're probably not that keen in a way people think that they're just kind of taking a back seat you've got like a 50 percent chance of having a manager that will back you and one that will be like "Eh." there's just saw something i think a part of this was to do with the word ambitious and kind of perceptions of ambition which I think is really interesting. You know, you know the data a lot more than me on this, Ellen, but mm-hmm. I did the word ambitious jumped out at me. Can you rec- recollect what bit I'm kind of pointing at? I right am now? looking now because I recall that. I remember that, <coughs> sorry, I remember that they were saying that people in theory say, yes, part-time workers can be ambitious, but I think there's still the majority of people thinking like, but you're not really, are you? Like, that's the kind of strange lingering thing. Because I think even the word ambitious is so constrained to the traditional ladder of success. And I've started to think about it. You know, I'm ambitious for different things. Now I'm ambitious for time on my own. I'm ambitious for time with friends. I'm ambitious to kind of carve out time in different ways. But certainly, yeah, you think about if, if I were to say if someone's ambitious, I'm thinking about it very in that traditional linear ladder structure. Yeah. And it almost seems to me there needs to be an opening up of ambition, of success, in order to be able to incorporate the different ways that we need to, and want to be working, where it's like part-time, part-time plus, full-time, to allow for yeah a different model of ambition, maybe. Or maybe I'm just trying to redefine something that has a clear definition. No, I agree. I agree. Because I think ambition is such like a complex word. It kind of makes me feel a bit icky. But it doesn't mean what I think I've been raised for it to mean. Like, I think you're right. We used to go, oh, ambitious means you want the like corner office or like the big job with a fancy title and a big proper suit um, and all of that. And now it doesn't have to mean that. We're actually doing a lot of research at Stylist with Google about this. They've done this big um, working ambition study um, to look at the state of the word ambition. And I kind of assumed that a lot of women would be reluctant to use the word ambitious, but actually they found the opposite. They were like, nearly all of them are ambitious, but it might just look different Mm. to what it did previously. It's not about those same traditional markers of success, it might be, this is how I want my life to look. I want it to be more fulfilling or more balanced and have greater meaning. Um, But this study, I've got the stat, they said that 50% of the people they surveyed think that part-timers are as ambitious as full-time workers. So again, it's 50-50 shot. It's, It's not great odds for being seen as ambitious and seen as wanting to progress up the ladder if you're working part-time. I saw something a couple of weeks ago. Someone got in touch with me and he said, oh, you know, there's so much confusion, but I've finally got some clarity. I saw something where a guy said, oh, if you want a job, you can work at home. If you want a career, you need to go into the office. And I said, look, beware of that, that that might yeah. seem like a lovely, snappy 
catchy way to express the moment we're in right now. But by the very nature of that, you're saying that someone who works really hard but requires flexibility is somehow not not interested in developing themselves and improving along the way. I saw something last week that said that one in 10 people have got care responsibility for parents. It's not just, it's not just looking after kids. It's not just looking after animals, like there's complexity along the way. And if you've got a parent with dementia and you're looking after them, then it doesn't mean that you don't want to get promoted. The fact that you're trying to prioritize the, the stuff that you've got going on. And, and I was really frustrated that that snappy headline sound headline grabbing soundbite had caught mm. this person's attention because I thought, man, don't think that that is objective truth. That is someone's opinion that they've just expressed in a, in a tangy way. So this, this stigmatization of part-time work is frustrating because to some extent, part-time work is, I thought one of the ways that we could make, working and careers more accessible for everyone definitely i think the thing that i struggle with is that that thinking is so widespread and so common like i find myself even thinking it myself even though i'm so pro four-day week and flexible working i still have that tiny bit of background thing of going oh but i'm working harder or like more than this other person because they're only working four days a week or three days a week it's a difficult thing that we're going to have to unlearn and really unpick on like a cultural level but I don't know if that's not the case. So when I think about kind of as ambitious as anyone else, if that is defined by working, like ambition in a t- typical traditional structure, like working to get more success and raise up through a hierarchy, and it might be the case that the other person isn't ambitious in that sense as them. And I kind of, I do think it comes down slightly to kind of almost uh, choice and what, how you want to spend your time. If someone really wants to spend their, all their time working, they get a lot of joy out of it and they're almost designing their life to do that. They might not choose to have kids they, because they want to spend time on their business or whatever it might be. They are probably going to have more traditional success than me because I've chosen to do something differently. So I do think it's possibly the case that, you know, if you're part time, there is going to be a sense of if someone is working full time, probably progressing quicker than you. Now we can talk about what does progression look like. So whilst I want to hold that statement Mm -hmm. up that someone working double the hours will probably experience more and might progress quicker. But there should still also be very well defined progression paths for part-time people, which what I'm getting a sense from in this study often isn't the case. Part-time roles haven't been designed often to be part-time. It was someone that was full-time that wants to go part-time and often still has the same pressures of a full-time job squeezed into part-time or the progression opportunities haven't been thought of and designed for that part-time role. It's still very much the assumption and default is full-time And we then start to try and make allowances or squeeze it into part time. So I guess I've got, yeah, I do have sympathy on that side that absolutely we should be designing really good part time roles where people can progress. So we avoid statistics like 50 percent of managers think that part time and progression is incompatible. That is ridiculous. We should be finding a way for it to be uh, compatible and to design those roles differently. But I do also, on the other hand, think it probably is the case that if someone 
just wants to be working, that they're going to progress further. I wonder if it's, if the judgment would differ, if it's what you're using the other parts of your time for. Like if someone were saying, okay, I want to go part-time because I also want to run my own business, would that be maybe valued or respected more than if someone said, I want to go part-time because I really want to focus on my physical health or my mental health and really spend time doing that? I don't know. I think it's interesting. I don't know how the conversation and the views of this are going to progress as we go more flexible and as we become more open to part-time for different reasons. A lot of it's framing as well, isn't it? Mm. Like, you know, um, if you had a consultant that was working with you, it wouldn't be uncommon for a consultant to be working one or two days a week and to come in and to have an impact on a project and to to leave. But no one would say, oh, that that consultant, by the very nature of the fact they're only coming in one or two days a week, they've now made themselves less of a stakeholder. You go, no, 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 they're very explicitly owning that project and working on that thing. So a lot of it is framing about, I guess, to some extent, we see constant availability as an important part of being a team member. And once someone is not always available or not present for us that we start i guess interpreting that their commitment is is less it's just an interesting framing thing framing exercise i think all of it goes to the heart of i saw something else this week so sort of moving adjacently um i saw bill gates this week was out talking about three-day weeks and what i find i find it so annoying because like it's you know okay Gates is out there. Gates has done one of the most formidable PR jobs in the last decade of turning himself from who someone was regarded as this sort of dusty, grey, boring archetype of everything wrong with capitalism, monopolistic capitalism. He's turned himself into this Jeffrey Epstein stuff aside. He's turned himself into the um, into this sort of thoughtful sage that you know has got opinions, and often these opinions are awful. His book on um, Global warming last year was really ill-informed as and and just you know completely hopeless. But he's come out and he's okay. What's the best way for Bill Gates to get headlines? He's not into the four-day week, babes. He's into the three-day week. <laughs> he's into like you know he's, he's sort of done a bit. of You've been to Tenerife. He's been to Eleven <laughs> and He's been sort of out there, uh, been sort of trying to upstage everyone. And the thing that I thought about this, I'm fully there for people talking about the three-day week. But the only way you can talk about the three-day week is if you talk about it as a bit of system thinking and you explain, number one, uh, so are we clear? Companies are going to pay, what, five days salary for three days work, are they? Is Microsoft going to do that? Is is Tesla going to do that? Is British Gas going to do that? Are they going to pay five days salary, three days work? Because I'm I'm surprised. It doesn't feel like a stepping stone that we could jump onto from now. And then separately, uh, are we going to gift that to everyone? So everyone who's a British citizen, are we going to say, oh, you know, the com- the country's going to support you getting a big pay increase because we've just gone through a whole cycle where workers asking for a 10% pay increase saw them vilified as enemies of the state. So are we really going to give people a 40% pay increase for working uh, two days, two days less? I just, I cannot see it. And what these people get away without saying is talking about the economic system that they believe will be there. They talk about, oh yeah, everyone's going to have so much more leisure time. And I just can't see how we get from where we are to where they're proposing we're going to be. Because I've, I've 
seen him talk previously about the need for an a-, a robot tax and an AI tax, which seems to be the only way to make this work economically, perhaps in addition to a universal basic income. I think a robot tax makes a lot of sense. So he, he I think when I was thinking about Bill Gates' three-day week, in order to get down to that, you have to have something offsetting the labor, which is going to be robots, machines, AI, which we're already seeing and will probably increase exponentially. So you've got something doing the labor, quote unquote, for free, you know, scalably. But then you also need something to pay for the additional days of quote unquote unpaid labor that has been replaced for staff. And I believe and it was a couple of years ago when he was talking about this, so it might, it might have changed his opinion. But talking about kind of the need for a robot tax where a tax on big companies using AI and robots to essentially replace work, they would pay a tax that would then subsidize the workers, which I think is very smart. And that would make sense. And you kind of need to introduce something like that. I'm not, I've seen very little discussion around it. I mean, certainly many of the, the companies that are um, lobbying the US government aren't going to be on board with this. You know, why, why should they give up uh, some of their cost savings when they bring in robots in order to uh, part-time fund someone? It's a very idealistic view from Bill Gates. Um, going, okay, we will just get AI and then it will be three day week for everyone. Everything will be great. And I think in theory, like that sounds great, but yeah, I also don't see it happening at least not anytime soon. And a hundred years ago, John Maynard Keynes, 1930 said exactly the same thing about a future where we work 15 hour weeks because robots and machines are doing the rest for us. And we've had a hundred year experiment of seeing what happens in a capitalist society when we have robots and now AI that can take over labor, do we see that that frees up more leisure time? Well, in 100 years of progress, not really. We, we still, we're barely moving from the five-day week uh, from kind of Ford's time. Even with computerization, assembly line production, all these advancements, and it seems to be because in the current system we have, the benefits of progress aren't evenly distributed. So they still go to that smaller and smaller 1%. And you'd need almost like regulation, I think, in order to redistribute that through something like a robot tax. We've got an election coming up next year. And if one party said, here's what we're going to do, we're going to change the balance of things, people are going to work three days a week, we're going to tax companies to make that happen. I cannot see that being well covered by the press. Mm-hmm. You know, I cannot see the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Telegraph, the, T- the Times saying, oh, we're strongly in favor of taxation on companies going up so that people can work a three-day. I can't see that happening, largely because the people who own those media are business people. And so it'd be their tax rates going up. I can't, I can't see it. I, it just, so, you know, when Bill Gates says something snappy, like everyone's going to work three day week and no one asks him the follow up, how, how will that be funded? Um, I just find it a really frustrating mission. Like I, I can't, I'd, I'd love Bill Gates to explain to me how he's, he's advocating a minimum basic income or he's advocating that taxation changes in the way it works. Cause you know, if he is a, a big order thinker that he's presenting himself as, that seems like where I'd, 
I'd really love to have the the revelation of his opinion. Agree. And also like the actual concrete evidence, like do a trial at Microsoft to like see how yeah. it goes. That would yeah. be fascinating. But I think it's, as you say, much easier to just say the headline bit of going, yes, three day week for all. Okay, do it. Make it happen. Like I would like to see how it would actually work. I guess kind of as we're thinking about four day weeks, three day weeks, the cultures that would be necessary. Something's been capturing my eye through my primary uh, research source nowadays, which seems to be TikTok, which I then go and try and <laughs> validate elsewhere. Uh, it's been a lot of, I don't know if it's a backlash, but talk about overly contrived workplace cultures. And often the differences, certainly between kind of US workplace cultures and UK workplace cultures. And I've seen this come through in a number of different ways. Uh, one of my favorite ones was from a US-based recruiter giving career advice. And she was saying, you know, if you really want to stand out this week, the one thing you should do to stand out to your boss is on the Friday, create an email train called the Gratitude Chain, send it around your whole team and just thank someone for their amazing work that week and ask people to pass it on. And I'm already seeing your, uh, your responses physically, cringing, kind of sighing. And that TikTok made its way to kind of UK TikTok with everyone commenting and basically saying, try this in a British company and see what happens. And I just quite like this, A, just this clash of those cultures, but then also people starting to comment around similar tools and things that companies are trying to do, such as one was talking about um, having to go around and talk about your high of the week. And they're like, that meeting would be my low of the week. Partly I start to panic because I was like, okay, what bubble are we in? But then it did, you know, after the initial anxiety surge of seeing the comments, uh, there's just the realization that it can't be forced, you know, designing that intentional culture and often it has to occur organically. But yeah, I just wanted to share with you to get your thoughts and especially your visceral reaction if you received that gratitude train. I do wonder if we need to move past the cringe factor, though, because, yeah, we all made immediate facial reaction of, oh, God, no. But like the principle of it is good. Like saying thank you to your team is really powerful and experiencing that gratitude is really powerful. And there's loads of research to back that up. But yeah, I agree. Even the second that email landed in my inbox, especially if it didn't come from my boss, if it just came from a random other person from the company, it would be deeply uncomfortable. But I do wonder if we meant to, we need to push past that to actually get the benefits of it. Because that's not a bad idea. It's not horrible to go, we should be saying thank you to each other. That's quite a nice thought. For me, there's a moment in Squid Games, The Challenge, which brings this to vivid life, where I think there's about 30 of them or 60 of them, 50 of them left, a fraction. And someone says, let's pray. And the <laughs> and the Brits around the group are all like united in this sort of awkwardness of thinking, well, I don't want to rubbish someone's faith so i don't want to say i'm not praying but simultaneously they're thinking 
this is just so uncomfortable and alien. And so you've got this shot of all these earnest Americans sort of looking down, eyes closed, and all the Brits sort of eyeing each other suspiciously like, what's happening? How did we find ourselves in this? We didn't want to do this. And it's it's adjacent to that. Normally, anything good in terms of company culture, team culture, really exists at a team level. And, you know, if you've got eight people in a team and that feels like an appropriate thing to do or short, shout out your successes on a Friday, that feels good to me. But the moment you get into anything that transcends eight, 10, 20 people, eight to 100 people, you've got such difference in values and approach, then it can't help but be inauthentic. Someone told me that over time, the only company culture that can survive is managed irony because um, because everyone will be in a state of rolling their eyes at something. And so my view would be, okay, make those things work, but make them in a smaller level where they feel legit to people. I used to work in one organization where every time there was a win, it would go around this sort of growing organization. And one guy's shtick was he would reply with, yeah, you know, often taking up two lines. And I once said to him, I think, he's good, but do you you not think you've done that now? And he said, no, that's my thing, man. And, uh, and it was like, okay, okay. I'm never going to win on this. And his enjoyment on him going, yeah, is such a big deal to him. He's not even thinking about anyone else. So my view is probably do what feels right and do what feels right in a small group rather than a big group, really. The word you use, inauthentic, was what jumped out to me when I was kind of dissecting why it felt like it went wrong in these instances. Because, Ellen, to your point, there's the sentiment and the heart of them are completely valid. But absolutely, that is a lovely thing to receive an authentic thank you. But in many of these instances, so the email gratitude chain was almost by design inauthentic because she even started it by saying how to stand out to your boss. So it wasn't actually about the authentic gratitude. And it's almost like we could sense that in its design. It was a way to make Mm. yourself stand out by trying to seem like a team player. But when I think about the other things, you know, high of the week, uh, it's almost like the, the medium might be wrong. And when I was yeah, trying to dissect it, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with any of these. And they could work in the right context, in the right team for your culture. I think it starts to become forced and inauthentic when there's a top down mandate of this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. We need to have a meeting each week that looks like this Um, because you will yeah especially in the British workplace you're going to get a lot of dissenters the sentiment though I think is really nice and how do you you know start from the top down in terms of values and sentiment but then um, what's the word disseminate that down Mm. to allow people to find ways to do that themselves do you think Matt that it would be better if you kind of did it secretly. <laughs> I don't know how to word it in a better way than that. But say with the gratitude chain, it becomes inauthentic and cringy when you know that they're deliberately doing it every week at this time. And it's something that they have consciously decided to do. But if you got a random thank you, it would seem really nice. So is the key to pretend that it's random like if all the managers were like got together and said we're all gonna thank someone this week and just didn't tell anyone would that be okay do you think i'm just curious 
I'm almost hung up on the language of in secret yeah. pretending in order to arrive at an authentic yeah. solution. Inauthentic uh, to be authentic. Yeah, I think at the heart of it, I kind of go rituals, mm. whether they're you know repeated regularly, like traditions, can be really, really powerful. So that's kind of a principle I think of. But then I think you have to factor in the authenticity into that. So whether if it could be weekly, and that might work really well for the team. We, um, yeah, I've worked in teams where we have our own silly rituals and traditions that would make absolutely no sense in any other team. And if you were to try and take that and say, we're going to move this into every single team, we had an amazing team leader who we would almost joke about making his hired and fired list because he was such a nice leader. There was no way it was ever going to lead to that. So we ended up creating a spreadsheet where we'd almost self-select ourselves into hired and fired number. Like, right, I've done two things that should have got me fired this week, three things that would have been hired. Like, it's an in-joke. If anyone else saw that and then said, right, this is a nice thing that's working with their team culture, it would have fallen apart and probably would have gone to HR for creating a hired and fired list. So I think it's almost like, how do you create authentic rituals at that team level? Maybe not. Uh, secret pretending secret things. meetings to do a gratitude yeah. clandestine gratitude meeting well that sounds quite nice yeah. the, the final thing i wanted to talk about this week was an article that i saw it it came from a talk actually by a five live presenter nihal arthanyaki um gave a talk in a diversity conference last week and he said something that i thought was was it really chimed with what i'd heard elsewhere so firstly nihal said that it was really affecting his mental health, that when he walks into his office, all I see is white people. And he said, just being surrounded with all these people, he said, you know, he didn't think there was a single uh, fellow Muslim in the whole of the editorial board of the BBC. And he just felt that sense of disconnection, I think, the the absence of belonging, he felt was just making his life feel more and more problematic over time. Anyway, it came a couple of days after I attended an event for a company and this company was talking, it was a group of HR leaders and they were talking about their own stats and what they were observing and when different countries were seeing strong team cohesion. And, and one woman from the UK said they were seeing a lower level of return to the office by members of ethnic minority groups. So minority ethnic groups weren't returning to the office. And it sort of reflects something that we've seen in data a few times, actually. There was something right at the, at the end of the pandemic in terms of when we were all working fully at home, that one of the groups who reported being less willing to go back to the office were in the US, black workers, uh, minority ethnic groups elsewhere. Big, and, and when asked, it was they felt that they were experiencing a series of microaggressions or they weren't being judged on their job. They were being judged on other behavior and attitudinal things. Um, we've seen similar things with young women in offices saying that they felt less comfortable because there was just a sort of passive harassment that they were experiencing. And it just really struck me that Nahal's point and him using his platform saying that it was affecting his mental health to be in an overwhelmingly white work environment was just a really big story and it often gets neglected when it's we're thinking about flexible working that there is a really important diversity and inclusion element as part of it mm, massive i'm really glad that he's spoken about that and kind of emphasized the real mental health impact of it because i think people don't 
how do I put this up being really horrible to a lot of companies? I think a lot of big bosses think of diversity as a kind of box ticking exercise and are not thinking of the actual ramifications of making those decisions. But the day-to-day stress of code switching or feeling judged or feeling like you don't belong, as you say, is so immense. It's not spoken about enough. So I'm really glad that he has spoken about this in a public forum because it is... It has a huge effect. And yeah, I think going back to what you said, Bruce, about um, a lot of minority workers not returning to the office because, you know, that's a place for microaggressions and for stress and trauma. So yeah, just avoid it. I found it quite complicated when I was engaging with this news piece, trying to formulate my own thoughts. At the forefront of my mind is the point around, in my mind, the primary point around inclusion and creating psychologically safe environments where people can belong. And a lot of that comes down to uh, creating environments where people don't feel like they're excluded. So how do you create environments where there's no in-group? I think that can be done with an all-white workforce. So I think there's obviously diversity layered through this. One of the things that And I'll probably have to choose my language very carefully because I think it's a really tricky topic. Some of the things that jumped out to me was maybe a complication of diversity and inclusion, which is why I kind of talked about inclusion and completely agreeing as a foundation principle here around creating inclusive environments. Then there was another point I was thinking around in terms of diversity. So he talks about, um, it's really affecting me that I walk in and all I see is white people. And uh, that there's isn't a, I don't think there's a single Muslim involved in the senior editorial process. And I was starting to think about proportional representation of diversity and looking into census data and thinking about, okay, well, the UK is, I think, 80% white. So you would hopefully expect one in five people to not be white. Um, he was at a diversity panel, so obviously this is also the context, and it's now being taken out of context into a big media publication and is being talked about outside of the context of diversity and inclusion. But within that, you would expect, okay, if he's talking about an overwhelmingly white um, workforce, is that more than 80%? Then I was thinking about, um, you know, what percentage of the UK population is Muslim and it's 5%. So what, I'd have no idea what the senior editorial team numbers are, but starting to think about kind of diversity in the service of what, And ideally, it's kind of inclusion. And then I was thinking about, well, what would the BBC as an organization's policies be around diversity? When I saw a few quotes, and my assumption is, I'd imagine that they partly want a diverse workforce because they want to represent the audience that they're speaking to. And if we assume that that's the UK, then the proportion of UK that is white is 80%. So I just thought it was complicated because I don't want to lose the inclusion piece because when I start getting into the numbers, it's very easy to sound like I'm saying this isn't important and all we need is to box tick and get these numbers. So I just want to return to and hold up that inclusion point first and foremost, that that is absolutely something I think is fundamental and we should be striving for. But it being kind of taken out of context and the headline being BBC presenter says, quote, overwhelmingly white workplace affects his mental health, I think is just, and I started to see just so many comments, you know, when it's out of context. So 
yeah, it's a tricky thing I've kind of been grappling with trying to articulate my position on it and thoughts because it does seem to be a complication of diversity and inclusion that's kind of been jumbled together. Yeah, as, as we've all said, I thought it was a, a, um, a valuable contribution because it's the the big thing that the BBC had to respond to afterwards was to say, okay, well, look, you know, we're we're glad we're aware of this, and we we haven't necessarily had a discussion with you on it. And it just it raises the fact that you know the experience of so many people in offices might not necessarily being taken into account, and that we we might not even be having these these considerations with teams and conversations. So, uh, yeah. Good, point, good piece. Yeah, which is why I think it has to start with inclusion first. Because if you start with diversity, you are box ticking and you might not have solved for inclusion. Whereas if you start with inclusion and then start looking at diversity, then you can start to figure out kind of how do we help and support the different groups rather than just, oh, well, there's a percentage here. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, I think that wraps us up. That's the final work chat of this year. We've, like I say, we've got uh, one other one other episode that's going to go out and then we'll be back in the new year. So please do let us know what you think or anyone you'd love us to talk to, anyone you'd like us to interview. And uh... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
uh, I'm really grateful for your company this year and thank you for listening. See you next time.